Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 139. Today's big Bible question, what is apologetics? Why should Christians apologize? Or actually, how do you defend the faith? So hello, friends, and happy Saturday to you. I am back home, praise God, in Salinas, California, and back in the podcasting saddle again after taking off, uh, I think, three nights in a row for the first time this year. Yes, the last few episodes were pre-recorded. I did have a wonderful adventure heading to Colorado and back with my eldest daughter, Chloe, and I am happy to be back home with Phoebe, Cassidy, John Cademan, and, um, hmm, oh yes, Abby whom I am actually funning with because she is the child who is most likely to listen to this podcast and she believes I don't give her nearly enough shout out. So shout out to you, Abigail. You are an amazing and talented daughter and you will probably be famous one day. Now, I could do a whole podcast on my cross-country trip, 2,200 miles of driving in just four days, not even kidding, uh, we saw the beautiful mountains of Colorado, the deserts of Utah, the red mountains and red sands of Arizona, and all that kind of thing. I could talk about the massive blowout that almost killed us in California as we drove through the Mojave Desert. Uh, but you didn't sign up for a travel podcast. You don't want to get into all that stuff. So let's hit the Bible stuff. Oh, one more thing before we do. I need to give a couple of shout outs out to uh, some of our listeners uh, especially a shout out to the guy in Rochester, New York, who downloaded 145, yes, 145 episodes of the podcast in a single day yesterday. Brother or sister, I assume your brother, uh, because, you know, women don't do that sort of thing, right? Uh, that's incredible. Was it an accident that you downloaded 145 episodes? I have so many questions. Do you really plan on listening to all of them? You know, that'd be like 65 or 70 hours of content. That's a lot. Well, anyway, welcome aboard to the show, uh, dear sister or brother or whomever you are. Uh, also, shout out to our Danish friend in Hovedstaden. I probably mispronounced that. They're probably in Copenhagen. You're one of our most consistent downloaders out there. Shout out to our brother in Harare, Zimbabwe, who has downloaded well over 100 episodes. No small feat in some parts of Harare. Uh, and we've got great listeners all around. We've got some great listeners in Frankfurt, in Ghana, in Gabon, in Victoria, in New South Wales, in Northern Ireland, Alberta, Dundee, Ontario, Varmland, Sweden. Auckland, New Zealand, all across the United Kingdom and the United States. Look, I'd love to hear from some of you uh, men and women at some point. So if you get a chance, comment on the BibleReadingPodcast.com site. That's BibleReadingPodcast.com. Let me know you're out there. If you got any questions or comments, I'd love to throw them in the show. Uh, or send me a message or tweet or whatever. It's good to interact with you guys. And ladies, today's Bible readings include a very challenging passage in Numbers 25, Psalm 68, Isaiah 15, and 1 Peter 3, which is our focus passage. Now, today's question is all about apologetics or defending the faith, and our key passage there is 1 Peter 3. So let's read it together. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. 
Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live your wi- live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Finally, all of you, be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer from righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at that right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. So we get the word apologetics, from the Greek word that is translated as defense in 1 Peter 3.15. It's the word apologia, apologia. The word is often translated as either answer or defense or something similar to that in most modern translations. And that's because both senses, both the sense of answer and the sense of defense, are intended in this word. And apologia is an answer or defense of oneself, or an answer, or defense of one's opinion, argument, or belief. An apologia is therefore something of a reasoned explanation. Here's why I did what I did, for instance, if you're giving an apologia in court, or here's why I believe what I believe, if you are giving an apologia in a first century debate, or whatever, or as an answer to a question. In other words, The Word of God is telling you and me, Christian, to have an answer, a defense, a reason, and an explanation for why we believe in the Bible and in Jesus, why we're Christians, why we have hope. It's a command in the Bible 
written directly to Jesus, Jesus followers like you and me, telling us to always be ready to give an answer to why we have hope. To be clear, an apologia is not an apology. Now, I know that's a little bit confusing, but apologetics is not about being sorry for being a Christian, but rather about giving an answer, defense, explanation as to why we're Christians. Now, if you're curious as to how apology went from meaning defense, answer, uh, in the early days to something you say when you're sorry you did wrong today, then you can check out the answer from Etymology Online, which I have posted at BibleReadingPodcast.com, uh, as well as a link back to Etymology Online. I'm not going to read that because that might be boring for some of you, but it's fascinating to me. So you can check out the uh, episode 139 show notes at BibleReadingPodcast.com for that. The bottom line, though, is an apology used to mean a defense or an answer, but beginning in the 1400s, the meaning shifted to where it currently stands. Now, words do that. They shift around. Christians aren't being commanded to be sorry they're Christians or to explain the sorry behavior of some other people who might call themselves Christians but behave in a horrible way. Rather, Peter is saying that we Christians must be ready to give a bang-up answer to the question of why we have hope in Jesus. Now, here's the thing. This presupposes, I think, that Christians should somehow radiate the fact that we do indeed have hope. I think that means we should be obviously hopeful people. We should exude hope, even in times of pandemic and trouble. You don't have to be a sunshine-pumping Pollyanna as a Christian, but I think being a dour pessimist is honestly incompatible with Christian hope. Honestly. Imagine this conversation. Sally says, Hi, Bill. Why are you so negative and complaining all the time? Bill says, Well, Sally, it's because I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus. Sally says, I'm confused. Shouldn't that give you hope? Bill says, You make an excellent point, Sally. I apologize. Note the modern usage of apology in this amazing dialogue that I just made up on the spot in less than 60 seconds. So, you're exuding hope as a Christian. You should be, even in times of pandemic and quarantine and fear, because you know Jesus and you know the good news and you know that Jesus is coming again. And so you're asked about why you're so hopeful. Well, what do you do? How do you give an answer? Must you know every doctrine and verse? Must you be able to answer every question from every skeptic? Well, not necessarily. This isn't a call to know every bit of Bible trivia and all of the deep theological issues that there are. You aren't being commanded to offer a cogent response to a question about infralapsarianism versus supralapsarianism. If 1 Peter 3.15 isn't a command to know everything about the Bible, well then what is it? How do we give a good answer to people who ask us about our hope? Well, I want to answer our main question two different ways. Number one, kind of a practical way. Number two, kind of a spiritual way. So practically speaking, I don't believe that every Christian must be a theologian and have a deep grasp of all the big and small theological issues brought up by the Bible. If you aren't really sure about what was decided at the Synod of Dort or what the Fourth Lateran Council had to say about heresy, 
then honestly, you can still fill, fulfill 1 Peter 3.15 just fine. Now, I don't want to excuse Bible laziness. You and I, we should know the word, but we don't have to know everything, literally. I think a Christian, anybody that has been in the faith for more than a year or so, even a young person, should be a virtual expert, however, on two different things. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus, and number two, the reliability of the Bible. You and I, we should be able to explain why we believe Jesus rose from the dead, and honestly, we should go a lot further than I believe it in my heart, or my mama told me so, or the preacher said it, or whatever. You should also be able to explain why you believe the Bible is God's word, why you believe it's reliable, and you should be able to answer some basic questions from skeptics about the resurrection and about the reliability of the Bible. In a world of social media, hobbies, binge-watching, reality TV, and other just, you know, frivolous things, you, dear Christian, have time. You can carve time out of your schedule to learn about the reliability of God's Word and the resurrection. And you know what? It's a command. We need to do that. You don't got to know everything But you and I, we need to know about those two things. Now, as I think about it, we should also know what the gospel is. We should be able to give a two-minute summary of what the gospel is, that God sent Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died on the cross. And so Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross so that all who look to him in faith believing that he died instead of us, and that God rose him from the dead, and he promised eternal life to us, we should be able to explain that that's the gospel. It involves Jesus paying the price for our sins on the cross. It involves him being raised from the dead and his promise to us that if we look to him in faith believing, we will be saved. We should be able to explain that, not in a memorized sort of thing, but just sort of off the cuff. This is the good news. Jesus died for your sins. He was raised from the dead, defeating death, overcoming death, and he promises eternal life to all who look to him in faith, believing in what he did. So, you want to learn a little bit more about the resurrection. You want to be able to answer questions about why you believe the Bible is reliable. Good news. I have some books for you to read to get you started. Any of these books really would be able to help you with both questions, and all of the ones I'm going to list are pretty simple reads. Only one of them is kind of advanced, and I'll let you know which one of that those that is. So, some good books to get you started on giving an answer for why you believe what you believe. The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh and Sean McDowell. Now, that's a long book, but it's not... Uh, it's a long book, and some of it's pretty deep, but it's also uh, a great book and a great resource to have. And it's uh, if it's if if that long book is a little too much for you, then another book by Josh McDowell, More Than a Carpenter, is a pretty good summation of that. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, The Reason for God by Tim Keller, Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. Now I gotta warn you, William Lane Craig, pretty clever guy. That's a, that's a fairly advanced book. Now I'm not a Molinist as Craig is, but I do appreciate his apologetics. Very, very bright mind there. Mama Bear Apologetics, Hillary Morgan's would helpful for those who are parents. 
The Case for the Resurrection by my old professor, Gary Habermas. I don't mean he's old. I mean, I had him in the past. I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler. Just get one of those books from Amazon and read it, and you will understand why the word is reliable and how you can answer questions about the resurrection. So, the second question, how spiritually, how do we defend the faith and answer questions? We've talked about practically what we need to know about, but like, what is our attitude? What is our approach? So, do, you know, you might think we've got to look smart minded, right? We've got to be tough and aggressive or those evil and rude atheists will just steamroll us, right? Well, actually, this command is not about being the fiercest debater or the toughest guy. You don't have to win the argument with your superior intellect and inclusive, incisive reasoning. This isn't you versus Captain Atheist in a no-holds-bar battle of worldviews. It's not about you being able to defeat your opponent with your incredible knowledge. Yeah, you should know a lot. You should know a lot about the resurrection and about the reliability of the Bible. Sure, give a good answer. Yes, engage well and with passion. But this isn't a fight. According to Peter, according to Peter, previously known as Hothead Peter, our answers must be given with gentleness and respect or reverence. In other words, you can't be a jerk no matter how badly you're treated. This is not about pounding your opponent. This is about giving a gentle, humble, wise answer. Consider just a few verses earlier in 1 Peter 3, 9, Peter says, Don't pay back evil for evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary, give a blessing since you were called to this so that you may inherit a blessing. So, Maybe you're uh, dealing with an overly aggressive skeptic for whatever reason. Don't trade insults with them. Don't give them evil for evil. Bless them. Be gentle. Be reverent. You say, well, why? I want to be a jerk. Well, if you're a jerk, you're going to miss your opportunity to inherit a blessing, number one. Number two, you're not going to be able to good, give a good answer for why you believe what you believe because nobody wants to listen to a jerk. So, in sum... We answer questions about the hope that we should radiate by focusing on the good news and the resurrection and the reliability of God's word. And we give our answers, our defenses, our reasons to believe, our explanations with respect and gentleness so that nobody can point to our behavior or bad attitude as a reason not to believe in the faith. All right, let's read Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. While Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed in worship to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that his burning anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses told Israel's judges, Kill each of the men who aligned themselves with Baal of Peor. An Israelite man came, bringing a Midianite woman to his relatives in the sight of Moses and the whole Israelite community while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of 
Aaron the priest saw this, he got up from the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite man into the tent, and drove it through both the Israelite man and the woman through her belly. Then the plague on the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord spoke to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites because he was jealous among them with my zeal, so that, I'm sorry, he was zealous among them with my zeal, so that I did not destroy the Israelites in my zeal. Therefore declare, I grant him my covenant of peace. It will be a covenant of perpetual priesthood for him and his future descendants because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The name of the slain Israelite man who was struck dead with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. The name of the slain Midianite woman was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, a tribal head of a family in Midian. The Lord told Moses, Attack the Midianites and strike them dead, for they attacked you with the treachery that they used against you in the Peor incident. They did the same in the case involving their sister Cosby, daughter of the Midianite leader who was killed the day the plague came at Peor. Psalm chapter 68 verse 1 God arises, his enemies scatter, and those who hate him flee from his presence. As smoke is blown away, so you blow them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked are destroyed before God. But the righteous are glad. They rejoice before God and celebrate with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Exalt Him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and celebrate before Him. God in His holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. God provides homes for those who are deserted. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious live in a scorched land. God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the desert, Selah, the earth trembled and the skies poured rain before God, the God of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. You, God, showered abundant rain. You revived your inheritance when it languished. Your people settled in it. God, you provided for the poor by your goodness. The Lord gave the command, a great company of women brought the good news. The king of the armies flee, they flee. She who stays at home divides the spoil while you lie among the sheep pens. The wings of a dove are covered with silver and its feathers with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in the land, it snowed on Zalman. Mount Bashan is God's towering mountain. Mount Bashan is a mountain of many peaks. Why gaze with envy, you mountain peaks, at the mountain God desired for his abode? The Lord will dwell there forever. God's chariots are tens of thousands, thousands and thousands. The Lord is among them in the sanctuary, as he was at Sinai. You ascended to the heights, taking away captives. You received gifts from the people, even from the rebellious, so that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord. Day after day, he bears our burdens. God is our salvation, Selah. Our God is a God of salvation, and escape from death belongs to the Lord my Lord. Surely God crushes the heads of his enemies, the hairy brow of one who goes on in his guilty acts. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, so that your foot may wade in blood, and your dog's tongues may have their share from the enemies. 
People have seen your procession, God, the procession of my God, my King in the sanctuary. Singers lead the way with musicians following. Among them are young women playing tambourines. Bless God in the assemblies. Bless the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is Benjamin, the youngest, leading them. The rulers of Judah in their assembly. The rulers of Zebulon. The rulers of Naphtali. Your God has decreed your strength. Show your strength, God. You who have acted on our behalf because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring tribute to you. Rebuke the beast in the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people. Trample underfoot those with bars of silver. Scatter the peoples who take pleasure in war. Ambassadors will come from Egypt. Cush will stretch out its hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord. Selah. To him who rides in the ancient highest heavens, look, he thunders with his powerful voice. Ascribe power to God. His majesty is over Israel. His power is among the clouds. God, you are awe-inspiring in your sanctuaries. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Isaiah 15, verse 1. A pronouncement concerning Moab. Ar in Moab is devastated, destroyed in a night. Kir in Moab is devastated, destroyed in a night. Deban went up to its temple to weep at its high places. Moab wails on Nebo and at Medeba. Every head is shaved, every beard is chopped short. In its streets they wear sackcloth. On its rooftops and in its public squares everyone wails, falling down and weeping. Heshbon and Eliela cry out. Their voices are heard as far away as Jahaz. Therefore the soldiers of Moab cry out and they tremble. My heart cries out over Moab, whose fugitives flee as far as Zoar to Eglath Shelishiah. They go up the ascent of Luhith weeping. They raise a cry of destruction on the road to Horonaim. The waters of Nimrim are desolate. The grass is withered. The foliage is gone. And the vegetation has vanished, so they carry their wealth and belongings over the wadi of the willows, for their cry echoes throughout the territory of Moab. Their wailing reaches Eglame, their wailing reaches Beer Elim. The waters of Deban are full of blood, but I will bring on Deban even more than this, a lion for those who escape from Moab and for the survivors in the land. Wow. Well, friends, may the word of God be a blessing to you. May his hand be on you. May he guide you and let you walk in wisdom. May the Lord bless you. Godspeed.